It seems like every day, beloved, we are given fresh reasons to worry. I didn't say concern. There's plenty of reasons to be concerned. But fresh reasons to worry. Uh, we need to worry about this Senate race. We need to worry about this new illness. We need to be worried about what this nation does. We need to be worried about this, is, this university's approach to health now being based maybe on, on not on merit of those in the school, but maybe on other factors that have nothing to do with proper merit. Uh, maybe it's to be worried about, um, well, you pick the subject. It seems like there's something to, new to be worried about constantly. I have no shortage of them, and I assume the same is true in your life. But are you open today to the idea that we are not meant to live in that mindset? Just imagine a mindset that was supernaturally given to you, that washed you in truth, empowered you to live, filled you with love and sound judgment. I mean, how would you feel if I told you you could have this? I mean, we could go on and on and be ruled by, I don't know, pick your, your, your source online. YouTube, social media, your favorite news outlet. You could be, go on and on, constantly ruled by their influence. We could go on and be ruled by peers around us, like teenagers in high school, and what their opinions of us may be. Or we can know God and know how he not only instructs us to think about this world, but how to know him personally and a peace that passes all understanding today. I like to think that, uh, you know, I've arrived at this point. I just have the peace all the time. I don't. I have to constantly go back and have my mind renewed by the word. And I'm going to assume the same is true of you this morning. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 6. It's on page 411. 412 in the Bible that's provided for you in the pew. And as you're turning there, Ezra chapter 6, let me give a little background and context. The Jews were taken out of Jerusalem by the Babylonians into exile, but they were released to return by the Persian king Cyrus, just as Isaiah said decades before in, said would happen in Jerusalem. The book of Ezra is a return story that recounts the events that made up the first and second returns to the land of Israel by remnant Jews who survived Babylonian captivity. And by means of this particular historical situation, we are intended to learn how people in the believing community can conduct their lives in a way that pleases God. Because what you learn in Ezra and Nehemiah is they're home, but they're not home yet. What do you mean, Pastor Garrett? Jesus hasn't come back. Jesus has not arrived. First of all, in the first advent, and then what we understand as the covenant community, the, the return of Jesus. We are still waiting for that day. So there's wisdom to be learned about how to be faithful while longing to be home. One of the primary lessons is dealing with opposition in this world by looking to God in the midst of our struggle to be faithful. Our context is in light of the previous chapter, the adversity, adversity four and five, excuse me, the adversarial tactic employed in successive Persian administrations in the times of Cyrus, Darius, Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes. In chapter 5, it began by going back to the incident during the reign of Darius. 
and we're still in that particular incident now. So prior to the lies contained in the letter of, uh, to, to Xerxes in chapter 4 about the walls of the city, this particular situation happened. It preceded that. And so remember how, how after a long delay, the rebuilding of the temple was again underway. There were two causes for that renewed effort. The temple work was going strong again. It was the prophetic encouragement, remember, of Haggai and Zechariah. And the second was a letter sent to Darius. And we ended that with last time we were in Ezra. The writer clearly intends us to see a link between the two causes, the preaching of the word and this particular letter that was sent. So when the people followed the words of the prophet, God brought them success. And the chapter will bring the story of the, the this chapter will bring the story of the first 20 odd years of the return to a satisfying conclusion. Rounding off what we know of the age of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, a new age of Ezra and Nehemiah will open, Lord willing, next week in chapter 7, a lifetime away from these events. So let's look now at the text. Ezra, chapter 6. Remember, Darius has received the letter. Hey, Cyrus gave the decree for us to build it. And we're doing this, and they gave the detail. So the letter's been received, now we pick up in chapter 6. King Darius gave the order and they searched in the library of Babylon in the archives. But it was in the fortress of Ekbatana in the province of Media that a scroll was found with this record written on it. So they remember they're going to look for this, if this claim is true from the Jews who sent this letter to him. And here's the record, verse 3. In the first year of King Cyrus, he issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt as a place for offering sacrifices and let its original foundations be retained. Its height's to be 90 feet and its width 90 feet. Three layers of cut stones and one of timber. The cost to be paid from the royal treasury. The gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and carried to Babylon must also be returned. They are to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem where they belong and put into the house of God. Verse 6. Therefore, you must stay away from that place. Tatnai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar Bozanai, and your colleagues, the officials in the region, leave the construction of the house of God alone. Let the governor and elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its original site. I hereby issue a decree concerning what you are to do so that the elders of the Jews can rebuild the house of God. The cost is to be paid in full to these men out of the royal revenues from the taxes of the region west of the Euphrates River, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of the heavens, or wheat, salt, wine, and oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, let it be given to them every day without fail, so they can offer sacrifices of pleasing aroma to the God of the heavens and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I also issue a decree concerning any man who interferes with this directive. Let a beam be torn from his house and raised up. He will be impaled on it, and his house will be made into a garbage dump because of this offense. May the God who calls his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who dares to harm or interfere with this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued the decree. Let it be carried out diligently. 
then Tatnai, governor of the region west of the Great River, Shethar Bozani and their colleagues diligently carried out what King Darius had decreed. The Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, son of Edo. They finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, King Artaxerxes of Persia. This house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house with God, of God with joy. For the dedication of God's house, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, and 400 lambs, as well as 12 male goats as a sin offering for all Israel, one for each Israelite tribe. They also appointed the priests by their divisions and the Levites by their groups to the service of God in Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. All of the priests and Levites were ceremonially clean because they had purified themselves. They killed the Passover lamb for themselves, their priestly brothers, and all the exiles. The Israelites who had returned from exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the uncleanness of the Gentiles of the land in order to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 22, they observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with joy because the Lord had made them joyful, having changed the Assyrian king's attitude toward them so that he supported them in the work of the house of the God of Israel. This is God's word. Amen. So this passage shows us the surprising power of God. What had jeopardized the work proved under God's care to, be, to expedite its completion. In all, it's, it's supposed to be surprising. In the first section, he superintends the details that lead to the discovery of Cyrus's decree. In the middle section, we see him take opposition and use them for doing the people good. And then in the end, we see the joy given by the Lord to his people as he has delivered them again. The Lord blessed the preaching of the prophets, and it resulted in the people continuing the work, which resulted in the testimony about Cyrus's decree, which resulted in the governors asking Darius to verify it, which resulted in Cyrus honoring the, uh, um, resulted in Darius uh, honoring the decree, which resulted in the expedited completion of the temple and the people's joy, all brought about by God's grace. All of these pieces came together. What does this text fly in the face of? Well, it flies in the face of worry. Because while we know we have responsibilities, at the end of the day, there is one who rules over every detail. This text shows us every reason we are to stay humble and, give God, give, uh, and, and that God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. Are you so sure your way of life this morning is on the right track? Who told you so? Your feelings, your friends, your relatives? Are you so sure today that living according to the worries of the day is a humble way to live? And you may not think you're so worried, but believe it or not, if you took time to examine your priorities and how you live, you would find things you're very concerned about and given to worry. Friends, look, at, look to our all-powerful God today and ask him to, you ready? Open our eyes, open your eyes to see what you might be missing. Here's the central point. It's there for you in your bulletin. Trust 
in God because he's omnipotent in providing for his people's victory. Trust in God because he's omnipotent in providing for his people's victory. Number one, point number one, right there in your bulletin. God uses little things to accomplish great things. God uses little things to accomplish great things. You ever see what goes into making a beautiful Thanksgiving? I invited myself to Miss Pamela's Thanksgiving. It's true. And it was beautiful. Thank you, Miss Pamela and Jacinta, for all that you did. And Keith, too, I guess. He's a, he is a Cowboys fan. That's hard for him to admit. It was a rough weekend for me. Thank you all so much. Beloved, do you know what goes into a beautiful Thanksgiving? The list making, the shopping, the food prep, the house cleaning, the decorations, the timing of what is when something's hot, what dessert you put out first, how to manage the lot of people, how to handle the massive cleanup, which is, oh my goodness. I mean, God bless you precious folks who work so hard to make holidays beautiful for typically clueless people in your lives. They show up and eat and act like it just came out of nowhere. All this just happened. No, it took a lot of particular details, right, for it to come together. You know, it's, 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 it really is beautiful. And I admire those who put a thousand steps into getting those kinds of things done. But today, God's word wants us to take a look, a step back and admire the work of God and his work that we don't see. The things we don't notice about what he does. God moves the king to see the facts through small steps in, set in motion. He, he saw to it that the Persian bureaucratic, bureaucratic scrupulousness in keeping and, and, and filing records entrusted to the furtherance of his kingdom. Notice how the ball gets rolling here by Darius giving the order to go check and see if this decree to rebuild had actually been given. And then notice how the info was not quickly, it, this info wasn't quickly accessible like on somebody's phone. No, they had to go do some digging. It was in some distant library that the scroll is found. Notice in verse 2, the record or the memorandum here lays out the orders for the rebuilding, the foundations, the dimensions, and how it was to be funded. It also required for them to bring any of the old artifacts back to Jerusalem when the temple was completed. The feel here is like our brother Jeff Milton returning back to his house after the tornado. Put it all back, right? As much as we can. But here, they had the particular items. And the scripture wants you to see a little foretaste of the one who has the power to restore what has been corrupted by sin and can put it all back where it belongs. Now notice that this fine was all it took for Darius to then give the order for the rebuilding of the temple along with all the uh, artifacts to be returned. God's allowed that, he, allowed, he could have allowed that scroll to be lost. He could have allowed the next king to be the kind of leader who showed no respect for previous administrations. He could have made the stacks in the distance library into a real mess. Friends, he could, no, he intervened. The thing is, though, friends, he owed the people, he didn't owe them these things. He, owes, he owed, them, owed them nothing like he does us. God owes us judgment. He doesn't owe us favor. People think, why doesn't God do this for me? Well, friends, first of all, we've got to start with, he doesn't owe us. But he chose a mercy to superintend and answer the prayers of many. The text is not teaching us to have a, a, a spiritual formula that forces God to do what we want. Now, if you heard me saying that today, you've misheard me. That's not what this text is teaching. It's showing us who's in charge. 
and how to wait on him, knowing that the end goal is not our, first our temporary happiness, but it's his glory which leads to eternal joy to those who know him. Do you follow me this morning? He permitted this request to make it through each little step to bring about this change. Who else could put all these little pieces together? The one who upholds the word by the word of his power. When tempted to worry about details, beloved, give yourself to prayer. Remind yourself through daily reading of the word, the one who holds everything in his hands. That plight you're going through, that, quote, bad hand you feel like you've been dealt, take it to him. He's in charge. Have your faith strengthened, not by focusing on the internet, but focused on God. And when tempted to feel overwhelmed by what we can't control, keep praying. Ask God to overwhelm you by his power, by his glory and authority more than you are currently overwhelmed by your daily battles. Because when we see him face to face, beloved, these challenges will feel this small and we'll be overwhelmed by him. All it may take is God moving one small piece that changes the entire picture. Focus in on the fact that you and I are not ultimately the masters of the universe. Aren't you grateful for a church that preaches God's word, that calls you to see God there? Aren't you thankful for brothers and sisters who have a timely word for you that's rooted in scripture when you're down? Young people, aren't you glad uh, you have parents who put their trust in God and not parents who put their trust in the shaky foundations of this world and their lives are just as shaken by those foundations? Aren't you thankful, young people, for the stability of parents who are not tossed to and fro by every little feeling in the world? That comes, friends, that grace comes from God. It comes from him, my young friends. And don't we need to be, beloved church today, the kind of friends who point each other to God in prayer where we exalt him in his power? All that to say, God uses little things to accomplish great things. Number two. Why you should trust in God because he's omnipotent in providing for his people's victory. Number two, God uses opposition for good. God uses opposition for good. And it's going to focus on 6 through 15 here. I was watching some clips of people doing some different forms of martial arts recently. And it was fascinating to see how some fighters use the weight and force of their opponents against them to get them off balance at a place where they can be pinned down. I think it's amazing how those people do that. It's very cool stuff. Well, friends, in the Bible, time and time again, the, our God reveals himself. He uses the works of the evil one and opposition against God's people to accomplish exactly what he wants the ends to accomplish from the beginning. And here we have another example of God reversing the outcome. The enemy and opposition intend one thing, and God uses it to fulfill his purposes. He did it in the life of Joseph and his brothers. He did it with Haman and Esther. He did it with Judas's betrayal of Jesus. We know the death of Jesus was exactly how God would save his people from their sins. That's the chief example. But when we see this in this section is the surprising use of the people's opposition being used for good. This, the pesky investigation. Uh, who are you and what are your names and uh, what are you doing here, building here? That little investigation into the claim of their right to rebuild the temple leads to full-on support, financial support and everything to finish the project. 
So God sovereignly moves the king to provide for the people. Verses 6 and 7, Darius gives the order for all opposition to cease. The local governors are told to leave them alone, stay away. You ever see those signs on the highway construction that says, uh, let them work, let them live? You ever seen those signs? Yeah. However, this situation, it's not about the worker's safety. It's about the governors and those who would get in the way. Let them work so you'll live. And so that's what Darius is saying. It's the law of the land, verse 8. And look how else the meddling of chapter 5 is used for good. The king says tax money will be used to supply the project and its sacrificial ministry in verses 8 and 9. He adds that the expenditure exceeding the budget for this project is to be financed from the general treasury. Now, this is mind-blowing. This, this plan may have been what Haggai implied when he spoke of the treasures of all nations coming to Jerusalem. I mean, talk about, wow, the Persians were supporting faith-based initiatives paid for by state funds raised through general taxation policy. I mean, isn't this typical of God to reverse these kinds of things around? In the Exodus, Pharaoh's decree to kill all the newborn Hebrew boys, Moses' mother, Jochebed, not only received her son back from the Nile River, but also managed to do so with a stipend from Egyptian coffers to help her raise her son. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, Ephesians 3, verse 20. It's a truth that we tend to forget, especially when it comes to the governing authorities around us, because we tend to look at them as the real power in the world, the primary power. But friends, God is the primary power. And you will not know that until you're exposed to him in the word and until the Holy Spirit enlightens your heart. Beloved, is your home filled with constant praise and proclamation of the truth? Or do you allow the world, media, and so-called influencers to have the pulpits, parents? Are your children pretty tone-deaf to everything that's weighty and substantial except to a video game or device? Beloved, let me say with a heart full of love, shut it down. Lead your kids in the word just like this. Go through the passage and show them God's hand. Go over the plain observances of God's power in the word. Do it again and again so that by grace they might hear and believe. The truth is there is no authority except from God. As Romans 13.1 says, as we see in the text, God may bring good from the most surprising quarters. And he does it here. Not only that, but look at how the opposition desires the people to pray for them in verse 10. So that they can offer sacrifices of pleasing aroma to the God of the heavens and pray for the life of the king and his son. Did you see that? It's, it's true. Cyrus wanted every group to pray for him. But God is leaving all people a record of who actually is God and who is the one who has the power to do something. It's God. Verses 11 and 12 gives the warning of capital punishment for any who interfere with the project. I mean, if you, caught, if you got caught interfering, you were to be impaled upon a beam from your own house. I mean, talk about reversal. You messing with this house over here? Okay. It's your day. That's a, it would be a bad day. The house would then be, then your own actual house would be burned to a garbage dump. Look at the text of remembrance and warning. I mean, may God overthrow That's a, any who interfere or harm the temple, the king says. Especially say, may the Lord bring his judgment and curse upon you. 
I mean, how serious was the king in verse 12? It was to be carried out, look at this, it's to be carried out diligently. It wasn't like, yeah, put this up and treat it like some municipalities do. Maybe you enforced your laws, maybe not. No, carry it out diligently to the full. Talk about uh, enforcement. Verse 13 and 15 reveals what the governors did. They got to it. They got to it. They heard his, They saw that these orders were fulfilled. And note how the Jewish elders continued successfully. It was with the building under the ministry of, look at the text, Haggai and Zechariah. It was through their ministry, carried along, God's people carried along by the word of God to do the work of God. And that little, that little section, just there's a little application there. Beloved, do not cut yourself off from the proclamation of faithful Bible preaching. You run the risk of tempting yourself with a natural inclination to unbelief. Fill your life with the word. Sit under the preaching of the word. The Lord ordained it for it to do you good. Verse 14, they finished the building according to the command or decree of God. So who's the sovereign here? Is it, is it Darius or God? We know who it is. He, raises, he rules the universe, raises up kings. Does he not pull them from their thrones, friends? Do not presidents all of a sudden experience things they cannot control that either helps or destroys their favor among people. There are little things the Lord can do, can change things and like that. that people never count on as they think of themselves as Lord and master of the universe. I mean, who would have thought that the election of William McKinley actually would really be about the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt? And boy, was it. Let's put him at vice president. Big mistake. <laughs> I mean, who would have thought in the 70s that after Nixon was flying so high that the Watergate thing would happen? What a disaster. Who would have predicted that a pandemic would change the national and political landscape of the world as, as people were mostly discipled by the Internet during that time and people became more sharply divided? Friends, it doesn't take much. Things have collapsed quickly. Whose decree overrides the decrees of man? God does. The eye of the flesh cannot see how it's possible for God's promises to come true. But the eye of faith, the eye of faith looks to the Lord omnipotent. It seemed ridiculous that God would give old Abraham and barren Sarah a son, but he gently admonished them, is anything too hard for the Lord? Whatever dangers you and I may face, we should believe that God's able to sustain us. Sustain us in them or rescue us from them. Are you worried about money, being single, being married and wish you were single, about children, about your health? What will you do? Keep on the anxiety train, spend more time, or spend more time looking to God, repenting of sin and growing in grace. Whatever dangers, physical pain, challenges, relationship strains, disappointing parents, disappointing children, tense work conditions, a marriage that seems to be growing cold, whatever dangers, believe God is always able. Ask him to help your unbelief. Ask him to sustain you while you grow weary waiting for victory. He repeatedly reveals to us that he is mighty, that he is the almighty precisely because we are not. We were never created to be independent. You know that, right? Even in a perfect world, in the Garden of Eden, in a perfect relationship with God, Adam and Eve were still dependent on God.
They didn't have the power of independent wisdom or independent strength. And then you add sin. Well, you got a whole catalog of weaknesses of heart, mind, and body of the natural dependence of human beings. The limits of those made in God's image were designed to drive him, drive them to God in thankful dependency and joyful submission. Remember what Paul said? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he, he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All that to say, God uses opposition for good. Trust in God because he's omnipotent in providing for his people's victory. Number three, God gives hope to the hopeless. God gives hope to the hopeless. Verses 16 through 22. You see the actions of the people, 16 through 22. They celebrate they dedicate the temple in large fashion. They worship biblically, appoint proper leaders. They follow the cleansing rituals, observe the, the Passover. You know, you say, Pastor Garrett, what's the Passover? It signaled a joyful new start. It's when God's people had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. Remember that in, in, in Egypt? And judgment went across the land, but it passed over all those who had the blood of the lamb over the, the doorpost. That would go on to be a uh, uh, that's would be a mo that's, that Passover would be used by them as a as a signal as a sign of a new start because that was the means how God delivered them out of bondage through through judgment through the death of the Lamb. So they would observe the Passover, signaling a new joyful start that God gave them in a previous Exodus out of bondage. They're still remembering that, and then you notice there they celebrate the festival and love of unleavened bread. It's a reminder of how the hasty departure from Egypt. They were to quickly get out. They were to leave the old leaven behind. They were to only eat something new there. There was, a, again, new start was emphasizing it. Leaving the past, the old, the sin behind to get the old leaven, the old life out from them in the new start. So today, you may not know it, but some of you in this room actually it's a, in, in, in irony, you, you, like, you're like so many today. You think that you're free, and you think that Christians, perhaps, are somehow locked down. You look at me as a Christian, you think, oh, I feel bad for Pastor Garrett. He's got a poor, pitiful, locked-down life as a Christian. He, is, uh, he can't think freely for himself. You know, he's, I feel bad for that guy. But the Bible says the reverse is actually true. The Bible says that believers in Christ by God's grace, are free from the slavery of sin. But you, my friend, if you don't know Christ, are still chained. And you need to be set free. 
you need to be passed over. You need to repent and trust in Christ. You need the Passover lamb, the one true lamb of God, to die and bear your sin payment and be raised to, to life for you. And the Bible says his name is Jesus. And he did exactly that. He lived the perfect life. He was the spotless lamb, perfectly innocent, never sinned. You know, there were others in the Bible who experienced the resurrection, but nobody, absolutely nobody was sinless. You talk about amazement. That's amazing about Jesus. He never sinned. I'm amazed by his power, but sometimes I'm really struck by that. He, was, he never disobeyed. He did everything right. And then that precious one, the darling of heaven, the son of God, went to the cross, crucified, giving his life for any sinner who would repent and trust in him. Oh, friend, God, I'm, I, I have the best uh, job in the world to do this, to tell you that God loves you and that he's willing to forgive you if you today, by grace, turn from your sins. That means to take God's side against your sin. Leave the old leaven of Egypt behind. Leave the old past behind and go on a new start. Turn towards Christ. Put your trust in Jesus alone and trust that he's your Savior and you'll be forgiven. God will take the righteous life, the perfect sinless life of Christ, and he'll credit it to your account. So when you stand before him, he will not see you in your sin and your absurdity and your pride. He will see Christ. He will clothe you. What love, what forgiveness that he would pass us over. He would pass over us in judgment because judgment had been given to Christ. If you don't know Christ today, repent and believe. Trust in him. Don't sit there like, I don't know what to do. Today's the day. Put your trust in Christ. You don't have to die and go to hell. You can repent and believe. You can, by grace, be forgiven. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Well, back to the text. The story ends with how God brings joy to the people in the midst of opposition through his sovereign grace. Verse 22. It gives all the credit to God. It gives all the credit to him. I love it how the people gave themselves to obedience here. Now they realize we need to be a holy people. Friends, sometimes we just got to remember that. That's always been there in the Bible. Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with, with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What, and what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 17 then goes on to say, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Isn't this what this assembly is about? We've been called out unto the Lord. The returning exiles were not uncompromising separatists, by the way. They weren't like, we're so holy and you cannot be a part of this. It wasn't like that. And heaven help us if we're like that as church. We're not, that's not the mindset. No, no, they were willing to accept, if you see the text, those who separated themselves. That means repentance. From the syncretism of the, of the day. 
So when people say God's love is unconditional, it means it's unconditional to any who repent and believe. His, his sovereignty is not conditioned upon fallen man, but his love is welcome to any humble person who comes to him for mercy. A repeated reference to Israel was designed to include more than just the Jews. Remember, turning Acts, it was to any who would repent. All this joy was given because of God. Let's tie it together now in these closing statements to the story of redemption. The theology, the teaching of the temple goes from Genesis to Revelation. The temple was God's house in the sense that he manifested his presence there. It was the point at which heaven and earth met, as you know. It served as a symbol of the presence of God dwelling amongst his people. And this is the main, in the main, this is the reason why the description of the new heavens and new earth, which replaces the old heavens and old earth in the closing chapters of scripture, contain no mention of a temple. John is emphatic, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And this is surprising because Ezekiel's description of the end in the closing chapters of his prophecy contained bl blueprints of a temple. And John's description, though, of the new heavens and new earth as being without a temple makes sense, though. When the reality is present, the signpost is no longer necessary. When the reality is present, the signpost, the temple, is no longer necessary. In the final state of things, God will dwell with and among his people, filling the new city of Jerusalem with the life and love, pouring out grace and healing in the river of life that flows from the city out to the nations. When God's time has come for fulfilling his purpose concerning his church, he will raise up instruments to do it from whom such good service was not expected. And while our thoughts are directed to the event here in the text, we are led by Zechariah to fix our regard on a nobler a, 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 a spiritual building. The Lord Jesus continues to lay one stone upon another, and he himself is the chief cornerstone. Difficulties, yes, delay the progress, but God is going to build his church. Nothing can stop him. The church will march forward, and we are the temple of the Lord, living stones built upon Christ. So, beloved, let's not let discouragement and opposition derail us. It's going to be completed, and it's going to bring abundant praise. The joy they had right here pales in comparison to the day when the Lord reveals his final construction. When that day of jubilee is, and celebration and rejoicing is finalized, he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. We will give glory to God. All that to say, God gives hope to the hopeless. Those who have no hope in this world can have hope in Christ. So, beloved, when we, are, we all either, you know, when we, when we die or we're taken up to meet the Lord, what mindset will we be glad that we kept? So we have a mindset right now. We'll take it with us into the grave or when the Lord returns. But what mindset do you have? Is it one of constant worry or one of confidence in the Lord? One of feeding worry or one of feeding peace in your heart through faith 
in Jesus Christ. Knowing that the one who's been raised from the dead has all authority to judge. He has all power. And he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to when the templing presence of God will be manifest throughout the whole earth. The glory of God will fill the new heavens and new earth and will forever be with you. And the joy and shouting when we see King Jesus, we know no earthly speech can describe. So, Lord, as we see in the text, help us to see that while opposition exists, Lord, you're always at work and you're doing things that will surprise us. Keep us fixed on you. Give us the grace to wait for you and to feed more upon you by faith in Christ. Through the grace of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.